Welcome to another episode of You Must Remember This, the podcast dedicated to exploring the secrets and or forgotten histories of Hollywood's first century, part of the Panoply Network. I'm your host, Karina Longworth, and this is another episode in our ongoing series, MGM Stories. Today's episode was suggested on our forum by Ben Hasler, who called in to tell us more about his idea. Hi, Karina. When I first became obsessed with film noir years ago, one of my early discoveries was Gloria Graham. She popped up in picture after picture as a gangster's mole or an actress looking for her big break or that sultry nightclub girl playing my angles. Oftentimes, these were roles that could have been forgettable, but Graham always brought a knowing depth to her performances a depth that made these women on screen indelible. After doing some research, I quickly found out how notoriously complicated her off-screen life was as well. And perhaps that's some of the reason those eyes of hers always looked so haunted. When you put out the call for episode suggestions, Gloria Graham immediately had my vote for the You Must Remember This treatment. Thanks, Ben. Gloria Graham was indeed a star of film noir who lived a life with plenty of noir off-screen as well as on. Because she became so emblematic of a certain type of mid-century female presence, a bad girl who was lovably tragic whether she was the criminal or the victim in the end, it's a bit surprising that Graham was discovered by Louis B. Mayer, the man who built a studio around his preference for all-American wholesomeness. We'll talk about that and explain why MGM couldn't bring out the best in Gloria, which was really the worst, until the studio helped her win her only Oscar. We'll also talk about Gloria's fascinating love life, which included four marriages, including one to Nicholas Ray, director of possibly Graham's best film and definitely one of the darkest treatments of Hollywood ever put on screen by Hollywood, and also another marriage to Nick Ray's son, Tony. Join us, won't you, for the MGM story of Gloria Graham. Gloria Graham was born Gloria Hallward in 1923. In 1943, she would revise her birth year to 1925, and it would slide down a few years every decade or so. Gloria's parents divorced in the middle of the Depression, and she and her older sister Joy were left to live with their mom, who became a drama teacher and directed plays at the Pasadena Playhouse. Gloria hated being on the lower end of middle class, hated having to wear simple homemade clothes, but she thrived at her mother's theater, where she had her first role at the age of nine. Her mother was an experienced judge of talent, and when teenage Gloria decided she was serious about acting, money was scraped together to move the family from Pasadena to Hollywood, where Gloria enrolled at Hollywood High. 
Before graduation, she was spotted by theater producer Howard Lang and invited to become a female understudy in a play he was mounting in San Francisco called Good Night, Ladies. When the leading actress showed up one night too drunk to go on, Gloria was put on stage in her place, and with her performance that night, she won the right to play the part permanently. She followed the show to Chicago, and when it closed, Gloria decided to take her chances on Broadway. Gloria was appearing in a Scottish comedy called A Highland Fling when Dudley Wilkerson, a talent scout at MGM's New York office, took notice of her. Louis B. Mayer agreed to see the show, but only because he heard the other actress in it had a Katherine Hepburn quality. But Gloria's performance won Mayer over, and he invited her to make a screen test. Gloria wasn't interested. As she later explained, you make a test and they say, look right, look left, look straight ahead, just like prison. For some reason, Mayer decided no test was necessary, and he signed her at $250 a week. This was a hundred more than Gloria had been making in the show, so she figured she'd go back to Hollywood for a year, fill her bank account, and then go back to New York. The only catch was that Mayer insisted she change her name. Graham was her mother's maiden name, and LB liked the alliterative sound of it. After all, Mayer's perhaps most famous discovery, Greta Garbo, had done okay with the initials GG. Gloria was now 20 years old, although she claimed to be 17. Like many new signees, Gloria spent many of her early days at MGM posing for publicity photos, even though there were not yet any movies to publicize. In late summer 1944, she finally started shooting her first film, Blonde Fever, and by the time it was released in 1945, Graham had been introduced to audiences via a media blitz. Like Greta Garbo before her, Gloria had been photographed looking sporty, apparently because Mayer himself believed that Gloria was going to make an impression as an all-American girl. She wouldn't, at least not in most of her movies, but for a very short while, she seemed to be headed for that narrative in her personal life. With a lack of work at the studio, Gloria kept busy performing on USO tours. In the summer of 1945, on a Texas military base, she met and immediately fell for Stanley Clements, a 19-year-old actor and recent enlistee who was on the base recovering from pneumonia. Gloria claimed she didn't know Stanley was an actor, that she had never seen him in Hollywood, so she assumed he was just a sweet soldier boy, until she realized he had appeared in one of the biggest hits of the previous year, Going My Way. By the end of the summer, Stanley and Gloria had eloped. Less than a year later, she filed for divorce, although she withdrew that suit not long after. All of Gloria's marriages would be stormy, basically from the start. And like most men in her life, Stanley drank and gambled and could be aggressive. At first, Gloria and Stanley were in similar career positions. Neither was working much, or at least on anything good. But then Gloria got her first big part. Frank Capra had been searching high and low for an actress to play Violet Bick, the head-turning town flirt in It's a Wonderful Life. The film was being made at RKO, but Capra couldn't find a girl he liked there, so he called the casting department at MGM and asked if they had any, quote, young blonde sex pots that Capra hadn't seen. 
Billy Grady, head of casting at MGM, answered in the affirmative. For Christ's sake, I'm up to hearing blonde pussies that have never been to the post. Grady showed Capra some tests, and when Capra asked about one of them in particular, the casting man replied, She's a star, but you think I can get any of our jerks to listen? Two years she's been around here snapping her garters. You can have her for a cup of coffee. Name's Gloria Graham. Gloria's work in It's a Wonderful Life caused MGM's jerks to pay more attention to her, and they cast her in a musical called It Happened in Brooklyn with Frank Sinatra, who was the biggest singer in the country at the time. In October 1946, Gloria was on the cover of Life magazine, wearing a short-shorted onesie, a ruffled dressing gown, open-toed pumps, and a big, open-mouthed grin. Inside the magazine, the article claimed that, quote, the most imposing of all movie magnets, Louis B. Mayer, has now made her career his personal concern. I'm Lauren Sherman, the writer behind Puck's fashion and beauty memo line sheet, and I'd like to welcome you to my new show, Fashion People. On every episode of Fashion People, I'll be talking to insiders about the stuff we're all whispering between the press releases. From M&A rumors to celebrity stylist dish to the future of legacy media. Be sure to follow and listen to Fashion People, a presentation of Odyssey in partnership with Puck. Available on the free Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. But pretty much as soon as Mayer or anyone else started to pay attention to her, Gloria started freaking out. She had never thought much of her own appearance, and when she started seeing her face blown up on a 50-foot screen, all she could see were imperfections. At some point around this time, Gloria had the first of many, many facial operations. Most of her plastic surgery was intended to correct what she felt was a problem with her upper lip, and she also had quite a bit of unnecessary dental work in an effort to change the way her mouth looked. Most observers of Gloria have said that these operations were the end game of Gloria's painful insecurities. Like so many women we've talked about before on this show, she thought her only value was the way that she looked, and she was certain that she didn't look good enough. The results of Gloria's fiddling with her face were visible by 1947. Mayer still hadn't figured out what to do with Gloria, and once again she was loaned out to RKO, this time to play a small role in Crossfire, the first Hollywood film to deal directly with anti-Semitism. Crossfire is an important film in the story of the Hollywood blacklist. Its director, Edward Dimitrik, and producer, Adrian Scott, would soon be named as two of the Hollywood Ten, even though this socially conscious drama had been an enormous hit, compelling moviegoers to line around the block. Crossfire opened two weeks before the second major Hollywood film about anti-Semitism, Gentleman's Agreement, but that movie wasn't tainted by the House Un-American Activities proceedings. By the time the Oscars came around, although Gloria was nominated, no one expected anyone from Crossfire to win anything. And not only that, but the nominees from the film who came to the ceremony felt like the rest of the attendees studiously ignored them and the film. Gloria didn't buy into the industry's temporary insanity. Actually, her lack of interest in buying into much of any of Hollywood's elaborate system of unwritten rules 
might have hurt her. Certainly, she had never really fit into the MGM family. So post-Crossfire, when Dory Sherry, then RKO head, offered to buy out her MGM contract, Mayer let his discovery go, not even a year after that Life magazine story proclaiming that LB was personally steering Graham's career. She'd be back at MGM for perhaps the most momentous moment of her career, but in essence, the girl who Louis B. Mayer dubbed Gloria Graham had to leave MGM in order to become Gloria Graham. It seems impossible that anyone could have realized it based on one film, but the sexy, vulnerable bar waitress that Gloria played in Crossfire would set the template for most of the essential films of her career. RKO wasn't always the best place for Graham. She bristled against some of the material they offered her, and the studio's next controlling power, Howard Hughes, would force Gloria to make movies she hated, like Macau, and he prevented her from being borrowed by Columbia to star in Born Yesterday, which became, for Gloria, the movie that got away. But RKO made a lot of movies that needed Gloria's particular talents. She was one of a handful of women whose careers seemed like they really couldn't have existed if not for the decade-long trend of film noir. MGM didn't really make film noir, so she had to leave in order to fully realize her potential. Gloria was still married to Stanley while she was making Crossfire, and it seems to have been known on set that they were apt to get into fights. He would hit her, and she would hit him back. They fought over Gloria's concern for her career, her habit of going out to nightclubs to get photographed, and her habit of going out to see other men. He drank, and he couldn't control his temper. She apparently, kind of liked making him mad. He could get scary, and Gloria would make him jealous because she was more attracted to her husband when he was a danger to her. But finally, enough was enough, and by the fall of November 1947, Gloria had filed for divorce, this time for good, although Gloria and Stanley kept seeing each other. On the night of his marriage to his second wife, Stanley disappeared after the ceremony. He ended up spending the night at Gloria's house, then returning to his new wife the next day like nothing had happened. Gloria met her next husband on the set of her first picture under contract to RKO, A Woman's Secret, a melodrama co-starring Maureen O'Hara and directed by Nicholas Ray. Ray had already made a mark at the studio with his directorial debut, They Live by Night. There were suspicions that Graham had been given special treatment at RKO because she was sleeping with studio chief Dory Sherry, which may or may not have been true. But not long after production began, Gloria was definitely sleeping with her director. By most reports, Graham surrendered herself to Ray's direction, although reports vary as to how far his manipulations went. One Ray biography contends that it was the director who suggested that Graham start stuffing tissue behind her lip in order to exaggerate the puffiness of her mouth. Graham's biographer claims the tissue was her idea, and that she also started painting on her own exaggerated lipstick pout beginning with this film. Either way, Gloria Graham was definitely developing a look centered around a big, artificial mouth. 
Gloria Graham and Nicholas Ray's relationship wasn't exactly love for the ages. I was infatuated with her, Ray is said to have said, but I didn't like her very much. Gloria went to Las Vegas in April 1948 in order to begin the six-week residency that would allow her to expedite her divorce from Stanley. The residency ended on June 1st, and that afternoon, Gloria was granted her divorce. That evening, she married Nick Ray. Their son Timmy was born five months later. Nick had spent much of Gloria's residency gambling away his salary and advances wired to him by RKO. Gloria took a year off from work after giving birth. When she started thinking about appearing before the cameras again, she had more plastic surgery. On her lip again, and she apparently tried and failed to buy a cleft for her chin. Though her marriage to Ray wasn't exactly a picnic, he admitted later that he spent most of his time gambling so that he wouldn't have any money for her to share as community property, Ray had still fought to cast her in In a Lonely Place, a film based on a novel by Dorothy Hughes that he was developing for Humphrey Bogart for his production company to set up at Columbia Pictures. In Hughes's novel, Protagonist Dixon Steele had posed as a mystery writer to cover for his real career as a serial killer. In Ray's film, Steele would be transformed into a semi-washed-up screenwriter who is suspected of killing a young woman. His beautiful, fledgling actress neighbor, Laurel, gives Dix an alibi, and then the two neighbors fall in love. For most of the running time of the movie, neither Laurel nor the viewer is sure whether or not Dix is a killer, but his possessiveness of Laurel is increasingly scary. Bogart has never been more unsettling in a movie. His masculinity has never felt more like a sick joke. He's never seemed more helpless or out of control. In a Lonely Place is as despairing a film about Hollywood as Hollywood has ever made. Not because of its satire of industry speak, which is so insidery it's almost too much, but because of the way it uses this single, doomed relationship to reveal the way so many Hollywood movies are about a man's fundamental fear of a woman, or maybe more precisely, what that woman could turn the man into. Bogart had wanted to cast his own wife, Lauren Bacall, as Laurel, but Warner Brothers refused to loan her out, so Nick Ray cast his own wife instead. There was some worry that the combative nature of their marriage would cause problems on the set, to the point that Gloria was forced to sign a contract in which she agreed, quote, that my husband shall be entitled to direct, control, advise, instruct, and even command my actions during the hours from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. every day except Sunday during the filming of In a Lonely Place. In every conceivable situation, his will and judgment shall be considered superior to mine and shall prevail. She also signed away her wifely right to, quote, nag, cajole, tease, or in any other feminine fashion seek to distract or influence him. Gloria at first fought this contract. She called it slave labor. But she had no choice but to go along if she wanted to make the movie. She also had to go along with her husband rewriting the film, 
until it became a portrait of the emotional collapse of their marriage, with her character essentially taking on three different forms. First, the bewitching, slightly dangerous seductress, then the motherly nurturer who types her man's script pages and puts him to bed when he's been up all night, and finally, the two-faced betrayer who plots to leave him when he thinks the relationship is secure. The most famous lines in the film were written by Ray himself, couched as lines that Bogart wants to try to fit into his own screenplay, which he admits to Laurel in a moment of high relationship tension. I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I lived a few weeks while she loved me. You like it? What is it? I, I want to put it in the script. I, I don't know quite where. The farewell note? I don't know. Maybe. Say it back to me. Let's hear how it sounds. I was born when she kissed me. I died when she left me. I... I lived a few weeks while she loved me. Filming itself went smoothly. Gloria was completely receptive to Ray's direction, and the film was completed inside of its schedule. But before the end of the shoot, Ray had moved out of his marital home. Around the time In a Lonely Place was released, Gloria and Nick reconciled, and she and their son moved into his new house in Malibu. It has been said that their strong sexual connection brought them back together, but sex was also a strain on the marriage. Nick wanted Gloria, but he was also paranoid that her appetite was somewhat less than discriminatory, that she just had to have it, and not necessarily from him. One Ray biographer claims Gloria once held Nick at gunpoint and told him to, quote, fuck or die, which is hilarious. As far as I can tell, Gloria didn't speak much about her reputation as an infomaniac, Certainly, that was not the kind of thing that Luella Parsons and her ilk were in the habit of asking about. But also, it's not girlfriends of Gloria's who have been interviewed after her death who tell the stories of her supposedly insatiable sex drive. They talk, instead, about her pathological fear of being alone. It's men, and not all of the men who are involved with her, who have claimed that Gloria was a man-eater. Maybe she was an infomaniac. Or maybe she got that reputation in part because of one sexual relationship in particular, which to some people couldn't have been explained any other way. One night in early summer 1951, Gloria opened the door of her Malibu home to find Tony Ray, Nick's 13-year-old son from his previous marriage. Gloria had first met Tony when he was 10 years old. He had been away at military school and was now hoping to spend some time with his father, to whom he had never been close. Later, Nick would say that the character of Plato in his film Rebel Without a Cause, a boy who lives essentially without parents, was inspired by Tony. But that day in 1951, Nick wasn't home, and Gloria and Tony couldn't take their eyes off each other. They went to bed, And that's where Nick found them when he came home. This was the final straw in Gloria's marriage to Nicholas Ray. Nick allegedly had Tony confess to the dalliance on an audio recording, 
and the father threatened to use this tape against Gloria in their divorce proceedings to make sure she didn't get a cent. But aside from child support, she didn't want his money. She took the stand in divorce court and accused Nick of hitting her in echoes of In a Lonely Place when she had locked him out of her bedroom. Gloria was awarded the child support she sought, which Nick didn't consistently pay, and Tony Ray would disappear from her life. For a while, he'd be back. In 1950, Gloria's contract with Arkea would run out, and she would elect free agency rather than looking for a new studio home. She'd embark on a shooting spree, making a handful of films which were all released in 1952, making her the undisputed star of that year. She'd appear in Cecil B. DeMille's Best Picture winner, The Greatest Show on Earth. In the noir thriller Sudden Fear, she played the mistress of Jack Palance, helping him plot to kill his wife, played by Joan Crawford. On the set of that film, Gloria would antagonize Crawford by beginning an affair with Palance, to the point that Crawford had Gloria barred from the set when she wasn't in the scene that was shooting. Gloria thought this was hilarious and would hide behind scenery, watching Crawford work and hoping the actress would catch her. But Gloria's biggest triumph of 1952 was her small but indelible part as Rosemary Lee, the bubbly wife of a professor brought to Hollywood to adapt his Gone with the Wind-style southern epic novel, in The Bad and the Beautiful. The Bad and the Beautiful was the ultimate glossy Hollywood film about Hollywood, and it brought Gloria back to MGM, that famous factory of big glossy movies, after she had spent the previous few years establishing herself as a complicated sex pot in darker, grittier films than what MGM was known for. But MGM was about to change. 1951 was the year that Louis B. Mayer was deposed from the studio with his name over the door and replaced by Dory Sherry, the former head of RKO who had been sweet on Gloria back in the Crossfire days. Dory understood Gloria's special mix of good girl and bad, which was perfect for the part of Rosemary, a sweet but superficial southern belle who wants nothing but for her husband to pay attention to her. When he doesn't, she allows herself to be manipulated into being distracted by a dashing actor, with tragic consequences. The Bad and the Beautiful was famously a thinly veiled portrait of many well-known real people and situations. In that Rosemary's desperate need to be loved would lead to disaster, it was, in a sense, the second film Gloria starred in about her marriage to Nick Ray. 1952 was a big year for Gloria in another key way. She had continued to have periodic surgeries on her mouth and teeth, but while in Europe filming the Elia Kazan circus movie Man on a Tightrope, Gloria had a procedure that went bad, leaving her upper lip paralyzed. One ex-boyfriend claimed she was actually going for this effect from the first operation on. Stunt double Rod Amato said Gloria had told him that she had started operating on her lip in order to achieve facial stillness, and that she had been inspired by Russian filmmaker Lev Kuleshov, who thought of actors as models and had proven through editing experiments that an actor who gave him nothing in the way of facial expressions could be made through juxtaposition to signify a wide range of emotions. I don't know if this is true or not. Maybe Gloria misunderstood Kuleshov's experiments. Maybe this boyfriend was lying. Or maybe she was just fucking with him. 
In any case, her paralyzed lip would be the source of much trouble on sets going forward. For one thing, her speech was impaired. For another, she was now regularly stuffing tissue into her upper lip because she thought it looked sexy, but it actually exaggerated her features to the point that cameramen had a hard time lighting and framing her attractively. She also had to change the tissue when it would get too wet to be effective and frequently reapply lipstick around it, and that caused delays. When she'd do a kissing scene, the poor leading man would get a mouthful of secondhand soggy tissue. She was often spotted on sets, staring into mirrors, running her lines to herself while making distorted faces. People started gossiping about Gloria's abnormal concern for her appearance and the bizarre methods she was resorting to to fix it. This added to her reputation as an odd bird. Her personal life didn't much help. About a year after the Tony Ray incident, Gloria started dating Cy Howard, a rich and famous comedy writer. Cy and Gloria were married in 1954, but even before that, their relationship was volatile. In 1953, they were in London for a Royal Command performance of Gloria's film, The Good Die Young. Cy was not invited to meet the Queen, probably because he and Gloria weren't married, but he was convinced it was because he was a Jew. He would torture Gloria by telling her in horrific detail stories about concentration camps. He was apparently obsessed with the idea that the plot to erase his people hadn't died with Hitler. When Gloria told Sai that she had to go meet the Queen even if he couldn't go with her, Sai scratched her viciously down her back, knowing she had bought a backless dress for the occasion. Gloria treated her scratch marks with calamine lotion and makeup and went to meet the Queen. Sai was Gloria's date to the Oscars in 1953, where she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for The Bad and the Beautiful. This was the first Oscar ceremony televised nationally, and Gloria was incredibly nervous about how she would look. She and Sai had a big fight the day of the awards over whether or not Gloria should wear makeup. This ended up eating a lot of time, and in the end, Gloria had no time to fully do her hair or face, and only had time to paint an elaborate lipstick pout. Best Supporting Actress was announced first, and when Gloria's name was called as the winner, she stood up and was immediately blinded by the television lights. She was the first person to ever win an Oscar on national television, the first time they had ever mounted a television broadcast, and she tripped on her way to the stage and said, Oh, shit. She made it to the podium, said a simple thank you, and walked off. The crowd loved it. She was Jennifer Lawrence, 60 years before Jennifer Lawrence. But the incident didn't do wonders for Gloria's long-term reputation. People said she was drunk, which she wasn't. Then, after the awards, she refused to give interviews, and word got around town that she had given her trophy to her son to play with, a supposed show of disrespect to the Academy. Meanwhile, Hollywood was becoming a place where no one had time to cater to the eccentric whims of stars, and Gloria had some eccentricities. She liked to do something different in every single take, and in fact, she couldn't replicate a previous take even if she was asked to. 
She couldn't stay on her marks, a problem which dated at least as far back as In a Lonely Place, on which the cameraman had tied a string around her waist and told her the string had to be pulled taut or she'd go out of focus. Ironically, she'd make two of her best films, playing signature noir roles, in films directed by the noted German taskmaster Fritz Lang. Lang took pleasure in punishing the undisciplined Gloria through her characters. In The Big Heat, Gloria's character is famously disfigured when Lee Marvin throws hot coffee at her face. And in filming Human Desire, Lang made Broderick Crawford and Gloria film 26 takes of a scene in which he slaps her for being a slut. But Gloria made these movies what they were by being more than what initially met the eye. In The Big Heat, for instance, after she's horribly victimized, her character steps from the sidelines into the spotlight and turns a male detective movie into a female revenge movie. And it's difficult to imagine another femme fatale of this era pulling that off in a way that feels as badass. Gloria Graham never got to be a real movie star. She never got to truly own the subjectivity of her movies in the way Katharine Hepburn and Joan Crawford did before her, and Audrey Hepburn and Elizabeth Taylor were just starting to as Gloria's career was waning. But in the big heat, she got close. Gloria had her last great big part in a great big movie in 1955, when she played Annie, the girl who can't say no, in Oklahoma. It ain't so much a question of not knowing what to do. I know what's right and wrong since I've been ten. I heard a lot of stories and I reckon they're true about how girls are put upon by men. I know I mustn't fall into the pit. But when I'm with a feller, I forget. I'm just a girl who can't say no. I'm in a terrible fix. I always say, come on, let's go. Just when I ought to say nix. When a person tries to kiss a girl, I know she ought to give his face a smack. But as soon as someone kisses me, I somehow sort of want to kiss him back. I'm just a fool. Gloria was famously not a singer. Her voice had been dubbed in numerous song and dance scenes in other movies. But Richard Rogers was not only convinced that there was no other actress appropriate for this part, but that, as he put it, anybody can sing. Gloria really couldn't sustain a song. As she remembered it, she would sing a few words at a time until she fell out of tune, and then they'd somehow cobble together the songs from many, many takes. Oklahoma became the final nail in the coffin of Gloria's reputation as an on-set menace, She spent a lot of time on the set on the phone to Cy Howard, who was trying to direct her performance from afar. She was constantly trying to upstage the other actors, stepping on their lines or even their feet, and in one instance, literally kicking an actress out of the frame. Her behavior was perceived as being so bad that at the rap party for the film, no one on the crew or cast would speak to her. This was just two years after her big year... And now she was basically persona non grata. 
Things would only get worse, or at least weirder. Vincent Minnelli's disastrous The Cobweb gave Gloria what would be her last high-billed part in a Hollywood film for nearly 20 years. Gloria's plastic surgery addiction had become a real problem. She showed up on set with stitches in her mouth, and her voice was so unintelligible that preview audiences noted that she talked like her mouth was full of hot mush. Gloria married Cy Howard that year, and the stakes for the marriage were high. On the day of the ceremony, Gloria's son Timmy had said to her, Mommy, if you blow this one, you're finished. Cy and Gloria had a daughter together, Paulette, but by the time Gloria gave birth in 1956, they had separated after months of reports of them fighting in public. By 1958, Gloria had become fully involved with Tony Ray. The son of her second husband was now 20 years old, and he moved in with 35-year-old Gloria and helped her raise her two kids, one of whom, Timmy, was Tony's half-brother. In May 1960, Tony and Gloria were married in Mexico. At first, they kept the marriage secret to all but the closest friends and family. Legend has it that when Nick Ray heard the news, he threw up. Tony and Gloria understood that their pairing was unconventional, but they really didn't anticipate the problems it would cause. After Gloria gave birth to the first of two sons she would have with Tony Ray, her son with Nick Ray, Timmy, decided he wanted to go live with his father. This devastated Gloria, who kept saying over and over again, I didn't have children to have them leave me. But things got worse when Cy Howard decided that Gloria's relationship with Tony was endangering their daughter Paulette. In April 1964, Cy filed a highly publicized lawsuit alleging a number of pretty horrible things. That Paulette's mental and emotional health and intellectual development were being harmed by the values she was learning, or not learning, at home that Tony had secretly beaten the child and made her terrifically afraid of him, that Tony and Gloria showed nothing but disdain for Paulette and were using her to milk child support money from Cy, which they spent on their own personal expenses, that the child was, quote, embarrassed and bewildered by her stepfather also being her half-brother's half-brother. Within a couple of weeks of Cy filing this suit, Gloria had a nervous breakdown. She was booked to star in a play in Milwaukee. Yes, this is where her career was at. But she collapsed while rehearsing, and on the plane back to Los Angeles, she started babbling incoherently about horrible things that had been done to Jews, the horrible things that Sai used to lecture her about incessantly. She was hospitalized and given 14 courses of shock treatment. In June that year, Sai was awarded full custody of Paulette. This whole series of events was devastating to Gloria. She essentially put her career on hold for a decade while Tony concentrated on his. She only appeared in one movie over the course of the 1960s, although she did some theater and TV. Her marriage to Tony Ray lasted 14 years, and despite the circumstances, was reasonably happy and loving, at least until the custody battle that ensued when Gloria filed for divorce. That same year, Gloria was diagnosed with very advanced inoperable breast cancer. Her doctor did radiation, and Gloria became a health nut. When her tumor shrank to undetectable size, 
she credited her new alcohol and tobacco-free vegetarian diet. But six years later, the cancer came back. She died on October 5, 1981. She was 57, but her death certificate said she was 41. Surely this was just a coincidence, but the 16 years shaved off of her age was pretty much the exact length of time that elapsed between Gloria's MGM signing in 1943 and her retreat into marriage to Tony Ray. Almost as if years spent in Hollywood didn't count as years lived. For Gloria Graham, they were years lived without lucidity. When asked in 1979 if she had earned her bad reputation by refusing to play the Hollywood game, Gloria answered, I don't know what that game is. I don't think I ever understood Hollywood. Thanks for listening to You Must Remember This. Today's episode was written, narrated, and produced by Karina Longworth. That's me. Our research intern is Allie Gemmel, and this episode was edited by Henry Malofsky. We had one special guest today. Noah Segan returned to the podcast as the sleazy casting director at MGM who refers Gloria Graham to RKO. For more information about this episode or other episodes, please go to our website, youmustrememberthispodcast.com, where you'll find show notes for every episode that detail the sources that went into the research. You can follow us on Twitter, at RememberThisPod. And if you like the show, a great way to let people know about it is to subscribe on iTunes and rate and review the show there. People use the iTunes charts to find new podcasts, and the more people who subscribe to a podcast, the better that podcast does on the iTunes charts. We will be back next week with the second-to-last episode in our series, MGM Stories. Join us then, won't you? Good night. She'll build you up to just put you down. What a clown, cause everybody knows the things she does to please.